nitroglycerin is the most dangerous and unstable explosive known to man. Any of you ever hear about the guy who invented nitroglycerin? Probably not, because he blew his freaking face off. His lab assistant came into the room, saw that his men are detonated, and he said, huh, I guess this stuff does work. All right, we're not going to take any more of this stuff than we need because nitroglycerin is extremely temperamental. So we do Heavy Metal Singer, Radio Disc Jockey, Public Access Television Host, Co-Writer of a Television Pilot, Documentarian, Actor, Stand-Up Comedian, Author, Special Boy, and an All-Around Great Guy. Well, guess what? I'm back! Coming to you from SMG Studios, it's the Claws Corner, featuring interviews with movie directors, authors, bands, entrepreneurs, ghost hunters, comedians, podcasters, and much, much more. Each week, I will have an in-depth interview with the up-and-coming stars as well as stars from past eras. So tune in and hear what they have to say on the Claws Corner. Enter, if you dare. Welcome to another edition of the Claws Corner. This episode features actor, writer, producer, and director Daniel Roebuck. He has over 350 credits in films and television, including The River's Edge, The Fugitive, U.S. Marshals, Devil's Rejects, Bubba Hotep, Halloween 1 and 2, Quantum Leap, Walking Dead, Glee, Lost, The West Wing, Becker, Bones, Monk, Matlock, and probably dozens and dozens of home movies, which he's still waiting for some residuals. We'll get to that later. Um, he has worked with everyone from Dennis Hopper, John Cryer, Tommy Lee Jones, Harrison Ford, Bruce Campbell, Dean Stockwell, Kevin James, Don Johnson, and the one and only Mr. Andy Griffith. He is probably the most well-known character actor in the business right now. Not only a great star of stage and screen, but he is also one hell of a nice guy. Please welcome to the show, Daniel Roebuck. How was that? That's, God, my gosh, that's, it's like, it's like being, uh, Huckleberry Finn and listening to my eulogy in the in the the roof of the church. Uh, and the only thing I left out was he was found dead on the side of the road or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And and we gather together to mourn his loss. Although I don't know, will people will people mourn or will they be happy they don't have to see me on TV anymore? They'll be like, but of course, then they're not realizing that I'll. That's the thing about being an actor. If you're on TV and in movies, you figured out a way to kind of be immortal. Yes, that is true. Because now you're, anything, anything that you're on is going to be on forever. So that, that's great. Yeah. And speaking just, of that, um, yes. sorry, what was that? Yes, no, tell, please, okay. please. No, I was going to say, you've say been... Other nice, say other nice things about me. All right, I have plenty of nice things. I have three pages of nice things to say about oh. you. <laughs> um, you've been in... Everything, like I mentioned, from web series, television series, feature-length films. Tell me how you first got your start joining the um, the circus at age 12 and then later doing impressions similar to your idol, Rich Little. That's true. Uh, I, You know, most kids run away and join the circus. My mother had to drive me. You know, she was she's getting the car. I'm taking the circus. Uh, so you'll never have a better agent than your mom. That's a fact. I try to stress that to every actor when they complain about their agents, I'm like, they're not doing the same job your mom used to do for you. huh? <laughs> so uh, my mom worked for a company and that company sold ads and programs. 
and they were selling ads for the circus. And my mom said, oh, my son loves this kind of stuff. He'd love to be a clown. So she got me an audition to be a clown in this locally produced circus. So uh, it was the Lions All-Star Circus. They didn't have a menagerie. There were no animals. But we travel around. Uh, I did two seasons, I think. So we travel around and we go to a high school. We set up the circus in the high school gymnasium. Uh, and we do two shows on Saturday and one on Sunday. Uh, and that was astounding to be 12 years old and have that opportunity. Um, and because my mom had to be there, so did my brother and sister. So they they ended up in the circus, too. Uh, my sister would rode a unicycle. My my little, little brother would run a, ride around on a float or something, um, you know, for the circus parades that they would do. Um, and then, uh, like, I've always been a performer, Rich, always, always. When I was a little boy, six years old, I started saying, you know, when I'm on TV, I'll, you know, well, I'll just, when I'm on TV, well, and I just started saying crazy stuff like that. Uh, you know, my parents just thought, well, he's, you know, insane. He's laying, you dropped him. You didn't tell me what happened. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'd always been a performer. I was never afraid of it, doing impressions around that same age. Uh, now, at age go- 12, what kind of impressions would you do? Well, you know, terrible ones, Rich. I mean, <laughs> come on. Like, well, how, how, good, you do? how good could I have been? Well, you know, then... We don't have anyone to impersonate anymore. Maybe you have Tom Hanks. Maybe. Maybe. You know, but, you know, Tom Hanks, you know, but you don't have Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and John Wayne. So back then I was, you know, I would, you know, I would do Cagney. I would do Cagney. You know, and I would (laughs) do. You dirty rat. You dirty rat. See, you would have been my main competition. Um (laughs) I did. I did. John Wayne. I did Richard Nixon. Marshall, Peter Laurie. I love doing Peter Laurie. But, you know, when you're an impersonator, you're generally impersonating the other impersonators version. Like whoever got there first, everybody who did, uh, for instance, everyone who 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 did Ed Sullivan, was really doing Will Jordan, who was the famous Ed Sullivan impersonator doing Ed Sullivan. So Rich Little was doing Will Jordan doing Ed Sullivan. You know, what my uh, so favorite... I was always, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, you, you mentioned Rich Little and one of my favorite Christmas specials of all time is the Rich Little oh. Christmas special. Sure. Great. We're... Terrific. You know, we're, we're, we're WC Fields is Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, Columbo, Peter Sellers. Yeah. And he plays, he plays all the parts. Now I had an extraordinary, now here's, you can't, Rich, this is the kind of thing that this is how I know two things. One, there's a God and two, God loves me because I was 12, 13, and I would do impressions in these talent shows and I generally win. And then my mom once uh, took me, I couldn't go to the to the finals of one of these talent competitions through school because we were going to see Rich Little and there was no you know, there was no way to change the tickets or anything back then. So I went back after the show. You could wait in line and Rich Little would come out. You'd buy a book and get your picture made with him. So I bought a book, or my mom did, and he signed it for me. And I just, that's one of my prized possessions. And then, you know, imagine imagine that little boy literally only 20 years later, and I'm playing Jay Leno to his Johnny Carson 
on in the late shift. You wow. know, we're starring in a movie together, and I bring that book in, and he's like, "Oh my God, where did you find?" It? I said, "You signed this to me when I was 12." So we wrote on it, Dan. I always knew we'd end up working together. <laughs> um, and then you know, last year my wife and I were in Vegas, and he was he was playing uh, he was playing one of the casinos. So we went over and I got to visit with him again and see his show and talk to him. He's a good guy, a good American, uh, uh, even though he's a Canadian, he's a good American. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, look at that, like 12 years old, 30 years old, 50 years old. I can still like the guy that I revered, just like Andy Griffith, the guy I revered, I'm standing next to. It's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. I, I loved watching him when growing up. So I, I never had a chance to see him live, but I know he is in Vegas, and I did want to check him out recently. When I when I go there, hopefully in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, I definitely, that was one of the first things. My brother brought some, brought something back from Vegas, and they had all these different shows. I said, oh, my God, Rich Little is still around? And I said, yeah, that, that I, was one of the first shows. I said, I want to check that out. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Rich, you should go. I'd say go soon. I mean, yeah, he's just, uh, I don't, I don't know how long, a, you know, what if a performer can't perform, is he a performer? I don't, I'm not, he can certainly perform, but, uh, you, you know, the, the genius of him is sadly, as those characters become less relevant. I know. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. And I mean, a guy like Rich Little, like that guy, when, when we were kids, I'm 55. He was, you know, he was on TV all the time. I know. Like every, he, they'd be on the the roasting, uh, you know, this guy or that guy. He'd be hanging out on Dinah Shore, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, whatever. Like he was everywhere. Yeah, I know. It's you sad know? because I work with a lot of younger people. Whenever I mention Peter Falk or Peter Sellers, I oh, get a yeah. perplexed look and they look at me and say, who is that? And it, oh, it's sad. Because they have no idea the greatness they're missing. I love Colombo. I love Caluso. I mean, those, those are just two examples. So, yeah, the fact that what you said is that he's doing characters that maybe aren't as relevant as they were, obviously, years ago. And some people, the younger kids, aren't going to pay to see that. And if they do pay, they're going to be, I'm confused. Why is it funny? Which is really, yeah, really sad. Who, yeah, who, right. Who is this? See, yeah. that's why it's important as a, as a dad or a you know, mentor or whatever. I mean, I, my, my kids... You, there, there's nobody named Roebuck who doesn't know who the hell Peter Falk is. I can tell you that. They've been watching Columbo since they were kids. If you ask my son who's the greatest comedian ever, he would tell you Tony Randall. Without right. without batting an eye, he'd say Tony Randall. We, you know, because he was brought up watching watching The Odd Couple, and we you know we astound we're astounded at at his talent. You know, Peter Falk. One of my daughter's favorite films is excuse me, uh, Peter Sellers. She like she watches being there, which is just such a great movie. Like there's you, it's part, it's our job. I'll tell you my brother-in-law, I made this movie that we'll talk about. I'm sure. But my brother-in-law has three kids uh, and two of them are twin 13 year olds who are hanging out with me the other day. And I opened my closet here where I have a thousand DVDs and we're like, what are we going to watch? Maybe, uh, you know, I, I'm at their uncle. So I want it to be a little inappropriate. So they, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was thinking maybe a Rodney Dangerfield movie, and my nephew picks up a movie, and the the tagline was a story of great will and triumph, or something like that. 
And he says, what's this? And I said, that's Papillon. Ah. Uh, it's about a guy who escaped from a prison camp. Great and movie. Now, great movie. And you know what he said? Can we watch this? Wow. Now, who, like, what 13-year-old kid, except a kid that's in our wacky family, knows that anything with Steve McQueen in generally is going to be entertaining? You know, uh, and these kids, they're, you know, they're, we, we bring them up respecting this. Now I feel like I'm on a, a sermon. Ask me a question. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm talking too no, much. No, I, I love what you're talking Because we should about. be, this is Seer and Roebuck. So your name is first. <laughs> so you should talk more. <laughs> I like that. Sears and Roebuck joining together once again. We The next comedy duo. The, yeah. the comedy it's sensation. Backed but... by popular demand. <laughs> Sear and Roebuck. It is seriously funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually the question I had for you, cause, or no, I wanted to make a statement first before I get into the next question was that my father was exactly the same way. I grew up watching all the Caluso movies, the night stalker, um, yeah. Kojak, Beretta, police woman. I also, you know, watched, um, the old universal monsters like Lon Chaney Jr., Boris Karloff. I mean, so I was very, very glad that my father introduced me to that whole world like you're doing with your kids. It's, it's, it's key. Uh, and also, I think it's important. I, this is the problem with where we are societally. Uh, if a kid is growing up and they're watching the Disney Channel, and I say this respectfully because I've done a lot of work on the Disney Channel. If you think that what those kids are doing is great comedy, oh. uh, and some of them are terrific, but, you know, great, great comedies, the honeymooners, uh, yes. you know. That's that's great comedy. This this is good comedy, and everybody's certainly trying hard. One hopes. Well, I think but, what the big problem is is they're too safe now. When you have comedies like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, where they took a risk and it was hilarious. Now everybody's like, "Oh my God! If we say this, we might offend somebody. If you do that, we're going to lose sponsors." Don't worry about that. If it's a good show, the audience will find it and they will stick with you. But now yeah. I think everybody's so it's everything's so sanitized now. Well, it's sanitized or agendized. I mean, it's yes. There's two 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 problems. You're either looking at at an opinion that you may or may not agree with, uh, and uh, but if you're overlaying consistently uh, a certain opinion on entertainment, there's a term for that. It's called propaganda. Yes, no, now, I'm with you on this. You know, do we do we want to acknowledge that that's what TV has become? I would certainly say that as a father, as a dad, you know, it gets it became increasingly hard to find programs to watch with children because, you know, consistently dads were portrayed as the stupidest guy in the house. Yes. Now, the dad's not the stupidest guy in this house. Frankly, <laughs> he's the smartest guy in this house. Is that because uh, the wife's not home? Yeah, I'm only she's she's she can't hear a word I'm saying. But I'm <laughs> no, but I am this way. You know what I mean? Like and no, that you're right. me, but the propaganda is, you know, let's convince these kids that they know more than their parents. Uh that way, you know, we could get them to vote for or whatever the agenda is, it is propaganda. Well they're doing the, the same thing. To... They're doing the same thing with the Ghostbusters remake and the Oceans Eight remake. They're doing the same exact thing. I know exactly what you're saying. So, well, I don't, and you know, again, respectfully, like both of those movies have competent quality actresses. Yes. But do you, what, why don't, why don't we, instead of trying to make everything equal, and those movies are a great example of exactly 
what we're talking about. You think that just because you're women, you could be as good in the Ghostbusters as your the men were? No. The the genius of Ghostbusters is those men were weak, right? Mm -hmm. They were goofy. They needed uh, they needed. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of of his of his name. Bill the Murray. Fourth actor, no, no, the fourth actor that they brought in to help. Harold Ramis. Uh, no, the fourth actor was Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd. Oh, Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson was the one who had balls, and Annie Potts had balls, right? Okay. So the joke was the men were weak and scared, and that's why it was funny. Now, they're going to remake Ghostbusters. I haven't seen it. Neither did I. I had no are, interest. Are we gonna port, but are we going to portray the women as weak? Of course we're not. No, no, no one's going to let that happen. So how can you have the same jokes? So what, it, so what I say, I throw down the gauntlet, don't remake Ocean's eight if, i mean jesus which was a remake of another movie yeah why are we remaking it the third time go write something new yeah because like you said kate blanchett is a great actress put her in something original but here's the reason why i think they do that is because they know that name will automatically sell doesn't really matter if the movie's good or not that's a known name so they do that instead of putting yeah, something I mean, in that maybe won't be as good or maybe maybe it's a little bit better, but like it doesn't have a known name and say, well, we might not. We, I don't want to take a no. chance. Now. I think entertainment is becoming lazy. And I'll tell you what I mean. All these, yeah, no, they... oh, look, you don't have to that. You could leave it right there. You don't even have to explain it. When we're watching the third remake of a Spider-Man oh. in, in 12 years, I'm just saying, you no, know, I know. 12 years isn't even a generation. It's a half a generation. So if we're remaking something three times in a half a generation, obviously their, you know, their research is proving that that you can tell exactly what's proving. Four years is as long as anybody remembers or wants to remember anything. Well, remember so, on, on TV they used to have best decade ever, then it became best year ever, then it became best month ever. Now it's like best day ever. They have yeah. all these, you know. Uh, shows talking about the past when it was actually it was only four hours ago <laughs> why is it on tv now is a nostalgia yeah, right didn't that wait isn't that the best day isn't that today listen let me let me do a plug for something i didn't make everybody listening should go see the documentary won't you be my neighbor i it's, just saw it last night is, am movie. i right oh my god it's that was such a good great movie. movie and 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 what we have now, it's 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 a movie that has no propaganda in it. It has no point of view other than everyone has value, everybody's different, everybody's value, but we we can't try to make people the same, but we can celebrate that they're different. Now that is the message we need to get to our children. We're not. Let's not. Uh, there was a sign. Now you. You have uh, what? What do you? Uh, you're a gentleman, and you have uh, oh, cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy. Yes. So we were driving down the down the down the road just now. Now, and I, I like that we're having a conversation that has nothing to do with movies. But you know, there's a, a billboard that says, "Celebrate, don't something else. Celebrate, celebrate handicap." Mm-hmm. And now, now I think, now what exactly does that mean? Hey, good job, Rich. Yeah. Great job. You have cerebral palsy. Is that what you want? No, not at all. I don't even, I don't even know you. And I can tell you that that's offensive. Celebrate yes. this thing that you would rather not have, 
but you've adapted to and you've succeeded against and and you've proven that you're better than it, that you don't want to be defined by it. You want to be defined as the entertainer or artist or the guy on the radio or what you do with it. You know what I mean? Like, so I see that and me, I'm offended that you would, why would you celebrate someone's handicap? We oh, should, exactly. Like, how about acknowledge, don't be a douchebag, don't <laughs> open the door for the guy in the wheelchair, make sure the guy with the crutches can get around your fat ass while you're sitting in the restaurant, <laughs> but we don't want the guy to walk in and have everyone go, oh, how great, you've got, you've got spinal muscular atrophy and you'll never walk, yeah. terrific. And the crowd you goes know. wild. Yeah, and the crowd goes wild for what? So. There's too much of this celebrating diversity. Well, you know what? Speaking, let's get back to that documentary because one of my there's two favorite scenes I want to talk about that documentary. One was where the kid came on in a wheelchair, and what I like about Amazing. Mr. Rogers is that he did not talk down to him. He spoke right, right, like he did with every kid. Yeah. He spoke directly to them, made the kid feel like a person. And when he asked him, he goes. Do you get blue sometimes? He goes, yes, but I'm not blue now because he, he wasn't making him feel like he, you know, he had something. He was like, he made him feel like a person probably for the first time in a long time. Like and his parents were great too. But the other great scene in that documentary was when they were going to take away $20 million worth of funding. And he oh, yeah, spoke yeah. for 20 minutes. And the la the first thing the Congressman said was, I guess you got your 20 million. Yeah. Well, no, Fred Rogers was, you know, beyond reproach. I mean, he was he was everything he was on TV. That's a rarity. Who he was, who he was, was who he was. Did you ever meet and him? We're, uh, say that again? Did you ever meet him? Well, I, you know, I can claim proximity, but not, not meeting. We were uh, showing the kids the floats at the, the Rose Bowl parade and he was a grand marshal which would have been one of the last years he was alive i think yeah which 2001, was 2003 2002 maybe yeah uh, when we saw him and you know they stopped his cart and he walked right by me and i was so flabbergasted i couldn't even speak i was like shell shocked that he was standing in front of me but but this is you know we're in a world where nobody is what the, now you don't you should never expect an actor to be who he is on tv because he's acting but you know I, we have, you know, news people who claim to be righteous, but they always turn out to be self-righteous. Oh, I have, can name a couple of names there. Yeah. Yeah. On, on, you know, and I'm not even talking about politically. I'm talking about people who, who are, you know, who are supposed to just be giving us information are, are, are doing despicable things behind the scenes. Yeah. Left wing, right wing, every wing. No, exactly. Uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers was he had one concern and your viewers should, should see the movie and that was to make the world better. So now let's move on to Dan Robot filmmaker. I've been an actor. I've done the man's work. And by the way, I still do the man's work gladly, happily. Well, if Rob Zombie calls me and says, would you be in this movie where we're going to kill 30 people? He's my friend. And I go, <laughs> yeah, I'll be in your movie. I wish he was um, my friend. Yeah. He's a very entertaining very, very, very talented man. Well, yeah, Extraordinarily we, talented. And we will definitely get to that. But first, I want to go way, way, way back Bro, to you when you got your. Because this, now, do you. Yes. This is like best career ever. Um, <laughs> like I said, this is still part of your um, obituary. Okay. 
Um, no, because this is this is actually an inspiring question for me because the answer is going to be inspiring because your first feature film was Cave Girl. I want you to tell my listeners how you got your first feature. Oh, um, so I went the the people who made this uh, movie Cave Girl. Uh, everyone should run out and see it. Um, by the way, Cave Girl, you could, I think, watch the whole thing on YouTube, but I beg you instead to go to type in Daniel Roebuck, Cave Girl, a second journey back in time. Watch the making of Cave Girl, which is, you know, with all due respect to the filmmaker of Cave Girl, 50 times funnier than the actual movie. <laughs> but so I'm a kid from Pennsylvania. The people who made Cave Girl had never made a movie before and they didn't know how to audition actors and I had never auditioned for a movie before so I didn't know how how odd their system was but we were all sitting around a room reading in front of each other at the callback and I watched one good-looking guy after another you know read for the lead in the movie I was only reading for a, a little part and they read and read and read and I just thought man none of these guys are funny so at the end of the auditions, I had read one or two times. Everybody had a few chances to read. The director says, is everybody happy? Did everybody get to read what they wanted? And he asked that question. Is everybody, did everybody get, so I raised my hand. Uh, yeah, Dan. Yeah, he said, could I read for the lead? And then everybody had to put all their shit down. And so, you know, <laughs> now we're going to watch this moron read for the lead. And then, you know, I read and after a few readings, I think I think what David realized was the director that the idea was they'd have like Clark Kent Superman. The guy's going to be a nerd in high school. But then when he doesn't have his glasses on, he's going to be this great looking guy. But the problem is those guys that they were reading who look like that didn't understand how to make any of it funny. And if it's not funny, it's not a it's a teenage sex comedy is the theory yeah uh, now cave girl none of us were teenagers there's no sex in it and i don't really think it's funny but that's not my fault like i did the best i could um but uh that that seems overly uh self uh deprecating i did uh or not self-deprecating enough maybe but that's <laughs> how i got the first that's how i got the first lead in the movie i asked for it no, what I respect the most about you were there's so many things I respect about your career is that you had confidence from the very beginning, from 12 years old, yeah, I'm going to join the circus, to you know becoming a leading man in your first feature. It's just impressive that you never once, it seems like you never really doubted yourself enough to say, I don't know if I'm good enough for this. You just said, I'm going to go for it. I don't really care. And that's yeah, why and you've been in the business since 12 years old. And Rich, there's something like interesting about what you're saying that because – overly confident and underconfidence are both equally as bad you, the pocket is is and when i mentor actors which i do a lot like i sat down with three actors today because they're given so much misinformation i i sit down with them you know i don't charge anybody i just give them my my you know my knowledge what i've learned and i'm trying to you know i was always empowered to believe in God's plan for me. Uh, not that I, I can't say that I recognize that it was God's plan for me at 17, but at 17, when other kids were smoking pot and getting drunk, I was producing plays and directing theater and writing plays. Like 
I was staying true to this calling I had. And, and there are so many talented people in the world. And I think so many people get callings that they, they want to answer, but they have too much fear to answer, or there's too much white noise that they can't, they can't stay focused on it. So the only difference between me and any other guy, let's say from Pennsylvania, I'm I, I am absolutely not the most talented actor, but I am the actor who felt that I I needed to do this because it's what was expected of me. Expected of me. Well, you bring up another good point because I did radio for several years. And when I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting, one of the DJs mentioned a, or he made a comment. He said if you turn on the radio, 90% of the DJs suck. He said, in radio, it's 90% attitude, 10% talent. And you're right in a way, because you could maybe not, maybe you're not the best actor, but you have enough confidence to carry yourself in your, and that would probably get you a bigger role than somebody who might be, you know, this quote unquote actor, but he doesn't have enough confidence in himself to, to say, you know what, I'm going to go for it. So there's a mixture yeah, of like always, confidence and talent and mixed together. It's a great combination. And, and what is, what is, you know, what is your destiny? You can't work against your destiny. Some people's destiny is uh, like my pop, you know, his destiny was to work hard to, for the city of Bethlehem, dig ditches, uh, you know, work hard, get, you know, get us educated, get us prepared for life. You know, and and his destiny is still working. He's still fathering us uh, the way I need him to be fathered. Well, he did you know, a great job. He, oh, thank you. I'll tell him that. My destiny, you know, partially is to be this actor and partially it's to be, but mostly I think I meant to say it's to be this person, this dad, this husband, this citizen of the United States, this uh man of faith uh you know this you know acerbic sense of humor like i'm i'm trying to be everything that's required of me but never do i ever think that the world needs me i think that i need to fulfill this this hole that i fulfill so that i need the world well, I there's, guess. there's I a know. different no i know exactly what you're saying and i always tell people there's a difference between arrogance and confidence and you definitely have the confidence and then what i like about you also because i saw an interview with you on some television show and you're we're going to talk about the movie that you wrote and directed where you went back to your hometown but during that interview somebody said i'm a composer and you're like i want to work with you give me your name and number after the show i promise uh, maybe not this movie, but another movie. So I like the fact that you're, you know, carrying it forward for people, and you're like sp spreading the wealth, and because you know how it was hard for you to come up, and you're helping people because you know how tough it is, and you're giving people a chance. Well, there is a lot of there's a lot of misinformation, and I remember that gentleman, and he had excellent music, you know, but we were we were already set for that movie, and I I will, um, I you know I will utilize him. Uh, at some point, to, you know, I'll I'll, I'll find a, a, a use for his art. Look, we're all just trying to do the best we can. And, you know, he took the shot just like I did, didn't he? Like he raised his hand and said, will you help me? Which is how how I, I try to tell my kids, this is how you get something done in the world. Would you help me? Is how you get it done. Here's how you don't get it done. 
I need you to do this for me. I'd say, you don't get it done. So if you could teach people, and by the way, we're not, there's none of the sec, all we get now is, I need you to do this. You need to vote this way. You need to think this way. You need to feel this way. By the way, we're, you, we can't adjudicate how people feel. All we can do is, you know, say, well, it's ungracious to be rude to someone because of any any uh, external thing. But, uh, you know, we can't say you, uh, if people just hate people with cerebral palsy, you can't stop them. And no, if and they hate if they hate guys who used to be clowns, I can't stop them. Yeah. And you know what? Who really cares? I always tell people that I'm like, I can really care less who likes me or hates me. If you like me, come along for the ride. If you don't get out of the way. Yeah, just yeah, but don't but don't impede my progress. Exactly. I mean, like over the years, because you mentioned I have CP. Over the years, I've been in metal bands in my twenties. Then I did a public access show in movies. I helped a friend write a documentary. I did um, radio show. I did a stand up comedy. I wrote short novels, and now I'm doing podcasts. And somebody says, "Why do you do all that?" And I said, "Why not? I have lots of passion. So why would I just say, Nah, you know, I'm doing this. Why do I have to do that? Why can't you do more than one thing?" Because my thing is, I never say no. I'm like, yeah, let me try that. Hey, let's let's try this. And sure, I'm well, having a great time. That's, I mean, look, dude. That's you know, you're you're fulfilling your destiny, and your destiny is to entertain. Like, so you just you just told me eight different things, but they all have one one common core. Entertainment and that is entertainment. You know, you if in the middle of that you said, I you know I did I did animal research for a while. <laughs> I'd say, well, now I'm a little confused, but you said eight things and they all had to do with being creative and entertaining. Which um, I and, love doing. And, and and by the way, you don't have to be a, a, a movie star, TV star, character actor, uh, podcast host to be creative. And every everybody listening to this in your community is some book writing class, some community theater, some uh, painting group. You don't have to pay to join anything, but there are other people like you who have creative desires that need creative outlets, and those outlets exist. And I will say, if you're listening to this and there's this thing that you want to do and it doesn't exist, then it's your destiny to create it because that's why you're thinking about it. Well, you want to so, know what's funny. You mentioned writing group, and I'm part of a writing group. So there was one class where he wants all of us to teach a class, and the class before that I taught – Everybody mentioned, well, I want to release my book, but I don't know if it's good enough. I want to release it, but I still have more work to do. So my class, the whole class was about perfection is the death of good. I said, you know what? Just write it, get it to where you think you want it to be, and move on to the next idea. So many people, I think what you said, are so afraid that they're going to be ridiculed. People aren't going to like them. They're going to be criticized. You can't worry about that. Just when do I don't, it. I'm not a fan. I, I don't try. Anybody who says they're a perfectionist is a narcissist. Exactly. Uh, there is no, there's no such thing. However, however, the other side of that is I have, I have now said uh, any number of times when I'm presented with material or ideas or, or things that are half baked, I say, when did good enough become how we do it? So in, in the, in my world, and my daughter wants to be a filmmaker. And so, you know, I'll say, go write that again, rewrite that again, rewrite that again. Uh, because good enough is is not done. 
you know, as good as can be is done. Yeah, we know what the problem is. Perfect's impossible. So forget that shit. But don't say to me, and I hear all that, well, you know, I'm a perfectionist. Well, you might as well just go chew a cyanide capsule. (laughs) Your life is never going to equal your, 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 like, your narcissistic view that, that you and for you alone, all chaos will, will dissolve and all things will come, come to fruition exactly a hundred percent as by the way, as you think they should, but who, what, you're not a godly person you know you're not a god you're human so your what's your perception of perfection would be would be a false sense of what perfection is because how the hell would you know what perfection is you're 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 not you're not you know you're not the creator of the universe i want to be the best that i can be but i'm not going to kill myself you should join you should join the army <laughs> I don't I like getting. The, I don't I, like getting fact, up that early. I love that idea so much. I want to go with you to re, to the recruitment center. You know what? All right, interview is over. We're going to the army. <laughs> Actually, that was a, we can remake the Paulie Shore movie. <laughs> no, I, I we see now you went. See you. I'm I'm a little disappointed, Rich. Oh, I was going to say Abbott and Costello. Oh. you went to Paulie Shore. Well, no. I, I that was unfortunately the first thing that came to mind, but I do like Abbott and Costello much better. I will say that for the record. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, everyone note that. Please write that down. Yeah. Please write that down. Abbott and Costello are better than Pauly Shore. With all due respect to Pauly Shore. Yeah. Now, which is what we have to say to, that's just like what someone says to you, no offense, but so now I've actually, I'm 55 now. When someone says no offense, but I say, oh, shoot. Stop right there. I know. I know the next thing you're going to say is going to offend me. So I don't really need to hear it. So whatever you're going to say, I don't care. So we say, with all due respect to Polly Shore, I'm sure Polly Shore is a good guy, but I don't really know that. But he's not Bud Abbott, nor is he Lou Costello. Definitely. So, yeah. Um, but you've worked with so many great filmmakers. And one that I want to talk about right now is one of my favorites, Don Coscarelli, because Phantasm growing up is probably my all-time <sighs> favorite horror movie. So you worked with so, him on so, several movies, like John Dies at the end. You worked with him on Bubba Hotep. How did you end up working with him? Well, I met Don through uh, through Bubba Hotep himself, Bob Ivey, the stuntman who played uh, Bubba Hotep. Yes. Bob, Bob was probably the number two or number three Phantasm fan in the world. I would have to say that there's a girl named Kristen Deem and my friend Guy Thorpe were probably one and two. Bob came in a very close third. He, you know, he got the bronze, but it doesn't mean it. He's, he wasn't, he didn't deserve it. But Bob Ivey was, he and I met as extras and uh, we ended up working together often. He doubled me countless times. Uh, and he was such a fan of Don Coscarelli's movies and then ended up working on them. And then, you know, I got to know Don through Bob and then, you know, he said, would you be in this movie? Uh, yes. So that's how I ended up in, in Baba Hotep was, you know, with Don Coscarelli was like, would you end up in this movie? Yes. Would you go walk my dog? Uh, sure. <laughs> would you, would you kill this guy? All right. You know, like, um, cause he's Don Coscarelli is a class act. Oh yeah. Uh, so I met him through that and that's how I ended up in, in, in those movies and then even in Ravager and, and, and dude, imagine, you know, we're now we're going back to the rich little thing. I could, I can, I can tell you a thousand stories 
And I wonder if all actors get to have exactly this experience. But I have a thousand stories. Now imagine as a as a teenager, I go see Halloween and it scares the shit out of me. And it's great. And it's John Carpenter and it's do 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 It's all that. And then like whatever, 30 years later, that same character's chasing me down a hallway. Like I'm in the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's Ready Player One, whatever. You know, like I'm there. You have a, you uh, have a way Ravager, of your life going full circle. In full the... circle and Ravager, uh, or or full sphere in terms of Ravager. See what I did there? Yes, I did. Um, Very nice. Rav- Ravager that I was taking a sphere. What that that was as crazy as like Michael Myers killing me. Like when we were kids, those we were like, what the hell is that? We didn't know it was a Christmas ornament. We thought it was. <laughs> we thought it was what it like. We like that. Like that original phantasm is so crazy. It's craziness. So uh, anyway, we're uh, we're. To, I'm very blessed to work with uh, Don Coscarelli. Oh, yeah. uh, and that was probably one of my favorite. I mean, I love Phantasm, but if I had to pick a second favorite, I love Bubba Hotep because you know the plot. Elvis played yeah. by Bruce Campbell, and um, who is the one that played JFK? My Oz, Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy Davis. Davis. Yes, he plays, but it's a comedy where they're fighting some kind of a mummy. A, a mummy that's stealing their souls through their anuses. <laughs> yes, and ladies and gentlemen, it's a comedy. Just, but it's uh, that is such a great movie. I um, was it Joe Lansdale wrote that book, and when Joe he, Lansdale, yeah, yeah. and. He even said when they bought the rights for that movie, how the hell are they going to make that? And Coscarelli, he did it. He did it very, very well. And so um, I have one funny story to tell you about Reggie Bannister, who played Reggie in the Phantasm movies. I met him, and he had the prop, the ball. So I was just making – I wanted to get a good picture. So I took the ball and put it in my head like they do in the movie. And I didn't realize it was the real one. And all I see, oh, like, my. blood trickling down. Reggie's like, dude, be careful, man. Be careful. I was laughing. But that, that, was, that, was, that movie still freaks me out. And um, you yeah. know, a little, a little uh, trivia on that. Because I'm sure you know, the first movie did, you know, was independent. Then Universal bought the rights. And they basically said, all right, everybody has to try out for their parts again. Who tried out for uh, Mike? But he didn't get it. Do you know oh, that? I know. James the James the Crow got it right. Yeah, was, but Brad Pitt uh, actually tried out oh, for that part. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You should have tried uh, out. You would have, you would have made a great Michael. Actually, the the actor uh, 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 who who plays Michael in the first in the a. First Michael role, Baldwin. Michael Baldwin always he refers to that movie as I understand as the movie that shan't be mentioned. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, so what's weird is imagine. Angus Grimm was so gosh darn scary. Oh my God, he was so scary. But you know who loved him was who? my daughter, Gracie. She met him, uh, gosh, she would have been about, uh, man, nine or 10 when I did this uh, TV show called Freaky Links, I think. And then, because, uh, you know, that's, we had met each other, but that's when we became really closer friends. And then, you know, she'd see him. And then I remember at the premiere of um, the premiere of John Dies uh, here in, in L.A. They were showing it at the theater. And I have just the greatest picture of her talking to him. And he was he loved her. 
she loved him. Oh, it's just so funny. Like life is so weird. Yeah. That there, there, there's the tall man. Like it's not just great enough that, you know, I get to be killed by a sphere in a movie, but that my daughter and the tall man are like hanging out. <laughs> that is pretty it cool. Seems so so incongruous to reality, but the one picture reality. I have of Angus Grimm as a tall man was the part where he puts his hands on Jody's shoulder and says, "The funeral is about to begin, <laughs> sir." <laughs> Sure. So yeah. I have a picture of him doing that with me. I met him several times, and he, as you just said, is the most nicest, down-to-earth, complete opposite of the tall man. You know, he's not yeah. menacing at all, but that's what makes him such a great actor because you see him. And you know what's funny? Because J.J. Abrams, obviously, is a huge Phantasm fan, and he used him in a lot of shows like, you know, Alias he was on. And he also named a couple of his characters after Angus Grimm. Oh, he does? So yeah. Because he redid the whole, I mean, he didn't redo it, but yeah, his company he, yeah. um, remastered yeah, it. Yeah, Bad Robot remastered yeah. the movie. Now, another director, another director that you worked with, which I love his last movie, 31, is Rob Zombie. Tell me about um, your relationship with him. Well, Rob's just, as I was saying earlier, he's just a, he's a real auteur. I mean, that guy can do everything. He writes, produces, directs. He art directs, uh, although there are art directors on his movie, he certainly has a sense of style that is unique to him. Um, I mean, I'm just, you know, I don't want to say. Am I putting you me, asleep? Want, Am I putting you to sleep? Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, no, this is the claws corner. It's very entertaining. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to sound like, a, you know, a broken record, but, you know, I mean, I just, we just have fun. We laugh. All the time. He one time there's a, a rock video called Teenage Rock God, and he called him. He goes, "Hey, do you want to play the devil in a video?" And I was like, "Oh, the devil! I don't really want to play the devil." <laughs> I said, "Can I, can I play him like Paul Lynn?" And he oh, goes, oh. Uh, "Yeah." So I mean, you look up Teenage Rock God, and I'm in this crazy Diablo makeup, and I'm like, "Hello, I'm the devil." <laughs> You know, like it's ridiculous. Like we spoke about in the past, uh, about 20 minutes ago, where you're basically doing Rich Little's version of Paul Lynn. Is that correct? Right. I wasn't doing exactly right. <laughs> you're exactly right. I wasn't doing Paul Lynn. And and right now when I did it, I almost sounded like Charles Nelson Riley. But uh, <laughs> uh, People listening to this interview will have no idea who any of these people are, and they have no idea what they're missing out on because they were such up. great look talents. Them look them up. Yes, great, exactly. Great people. That's what we have Google for. Right. Now, you've been in so many television shows. I'm going to name a couple. Lost, Nash Bridges, Walking Dead, King of Queens, just to name a few. Now, the show that intrigues me the most is, has, to, has to be Matlock. Tell me what oh, it was like yeah. working with the great Andy Griffith. Well, it was, you know, three of the best years of my life. Really, actually, it was eight of the best years of my life because I was on the, the first season with him. Uh, you know, I did my first episode uh, with him back in god that would have been like 89 wow um i i mean look i went to work every day with a a legend and every day he would say nice things to me like danny make this funny or <laughs> danny what are we gonna do with this or you know whatever uh you do a great and, impression uh, uh i just love being with the guy then i come home and my former wife i turned on the andy griffith show and she said didn't you just spend 12 hours with the guy and i'm like oh, i just can't get enough well speaking of the andy griffith show i don't know how true this is 
because you know inquiring minds want to know. But I heard that you know he like he was such a practical joker where he was like you know he had a great sense of humor. And I guess the woman that played Aunt B really did not like that at all. And she was she, there was times where I guess she didn't speak with him for a long time because she thought he was he wasn't taking it seriously enough. I don't know how true that is, but yeah, it is I would I would I would my my take on that would be. Uh, that's Frances Bouvier who we're talking about. Yes. Uh, she was not she was not one of the gang. Um and and but it was his TV show, so there would be no expectation or demand of him to make it you know different. It was his show. And he and Don Knotts were, you know, madly in love with each other, and I mean that in a yeah, not in any sense other than they loved each other's talent. Um and you know, it was like they were probably there's probably a lot of chicanery that she didn't find funny. Uh, but that's like my mom. You know, when we're all together, the kids, all we do is make fun of each other and make fun of them. And they're not amused by it. Um, and I love that, that kind of humor. Probably like like it. But, you know, we. I mean, I'm a I'm a great like I'm a, a big watcher of of that show. And uh, well, when you have Don Knotts and Andy Griffith, I can't imagine her being, you know, like if she if she doesn't have a sense of humor, it must have been hard to work on that show with such great comedy talent. Comedian yeah, talent. and I'll and I'll go say, you know, like when you start thinking the only the only like sour note in the the nine years of that show. And and I know he was a real actor was poor Jack Burns. Yes. You know, when he had, when he had to come on. And they were trying, you can see one after another, they're trying to replace Barney. They're, they try, you know, they try the English guy again. They try, you know, uh, and they lost Gomer Pyle. Yeah. But I, I defy you to find, especially in the end, when we know everything that we knew about Jim Neighbors' personal life, mm -hmm. what that guy pulled off as Gomer Pyle is truly one of the most brilliant characterizations any actor has ever created it's right up there as far as i'm concerned with fred gwynn as herman munster there's only ever one of those there will never be another one of those and you could try to recreate it a million times but that guy was brilliant at a level that you it's un you can't even my brain as an actor can't even think how he did it Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't him at all. No, I agree. And you know what's funny about Jack Burns? Most people probably don't even realize this. He got his start as George Carlin's sidekick. Oh, now that's interesting. So is that before Burns and Well, that would be before Burns and Schreiber. Yes. Then it was – so it was Burns and Carlin. And Burns then... and Carlin. And then what happened was George Carlin was – he got sick of doing because back then, if you if you go on YouTube, you can see it, and it's hilarious. Because I read um, a document or I read a book on George Carlin, and I also saw a documentary about this. He just was getting bored with the whole thing because they were doing you know Robert Kennedy impressions, JFK impressions, and it was a lot of political topical humor. And then George Carlin was said, nah, "I'm getting sick of this," so he went off on his own. And that's when Jack Burns went on to produce. You know, well, you said he went on to another comedy duo. Then he you know produced Fridays. He was on Mayberry RFD. So yeah, he had his own career afterwards. But George Carlin, you know, took his comedy to a whole new level. And again, I I mean Jack Burns, what like. It, it was just a sour note for that show. Yeah. Because they didn't, you know, and and the character, they, they made him super serious and, 
that was that was hard because that was completely you know counter to what they had learned which was Andy Griffith was the straight man mm-hmm. so you know they made they made that that character super serious but tried to be humorous it just wasn't you know he just didn't he just wasn't and nobody ever could be Don Knotts ever not ever oh so, ne- yeah never don't even try yeah so Don Knotts is another example of you know if I had to if I had to say characterizations that were are impossible to figure out I would put that I would put Ed Norton dot you know Barney Fife Herman Munster Gomer Pyle these are these are characters that are so unique that there was no precedent for them well, you know it's kind funny. of we we don't see it recently the only recent example of that would be like John Hader as Napoleon Dynamite yeah no exactly it is, it is so original yet and yet so realistic and you think how did no one figure that out before but nobody did i know well again i think it's most people are afraid to try something new that's i think what the big thing is and they're losing out on so much because something that you know cost a couple thousand dollars like napoleon dynamite did and it became such a smash hit and i people still quote that movie pills you know it's become like a cult hit um yeah you this, quote that. what was that no, you'll quote that movie for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. I wanted to say, because most of the time, you know, when you get, like we mentioned, you know, you have, like, one character, that character leaves, and a new one comes in. It usually doesn't work out. One time, it did work out, I think, it was when the Ropers left Three's Company and Don Knotts came in as Mr. Furley. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I think, Mr. when the show really, that was when it that was at its peak. When it had, You know, we, we actually did a TV movie about Three's Company, and I wonder if that's on YouTube. Hmm. Um, I did see that called, one. Behind the camera, the making of Three's Company, in which, you know, actors portrayed those. I portray the the producer of the show, um, and they, you know, so we did all of that. The the Ropers left for their own show, and Don Knotts came in. Uh, Greg Binkley, a, a terrific character guy, played Don uh, so well. Um, anyway, yeah, I know, I, I agree, and. And certainly the time that Daniel Roebuck replaced Clarence Gilliard on Matlock, that was a great success. Oh, exactly. Um, well, so see, much for Andy to, Griffith wanted you back. I tried to slip it in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was I was lucky because I got to do the last three seasons, and those seasons were in Wilmington, North Carolina. So Andy was close to home. I was, uh, you know, I myself was uh, happy to be there. Um, it was just really a great time. Now, you also played in another television – I mean, you played in lots of television movies, but another one about a popular TV show. You played Gary Marshall in the Mork and Mindy movie. Right, yeah. I became the guy who plays guys. <laughs> well, did you ever meet Gary Marshall, or did you ever work with him? He couldn't have been – he couldn't have been nicer. He He's, goes, you – yeah, he goes, he goes, you're the guy who played me. You were fantastic. I should go get you a fudgicle. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, you do a great impression. Wasn't it funny? There I was, the 12-year-old boy doing impressions, and then I, I do these movies where I do, I I portray people. Like, you know, it's just an odd, like everything I did as a kid was training. And yeah. and even, you know, uh, you know, on, on to, because I know I, I don't want to run out of time, uh, but, you know, I, I directed a lot of theater in which I also starred. And it seems like, why would you do that? Abandoned production, but 
you know, I'm a pretty good actor and I would pick these plays that I knew that, you know, I could anchor and then I could find great actors around me like Andy Griffith did, you know, or whomever yeah. uh, to Jack, Jackie Gleason. And then when it came, you know, I never realized that that was all really training for me directing movies and starring myself like, you know, like Albert Brooks does, you know, or, you know, Sean Penn has done in the past. Yeah. Well, um, well, you know what makes people like you, Andy Griffith, Albert Brooks, so like the movie's so great is that there's no ego involved and you want people who are just as talented or even more talented than them because other some some actors will say, no, I got to be the funniest one in the movie. I have to be the best one in the movie. But when you have a great cast and you could, like Johnny Carson, he was great at letting the guest be the star. Now every yeah. oh, late yeah. night show host has to be the star. He doesn't. Even, I don't even think the guest gets a word in. Yeah, no, I'm. It's it's a, you're 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 definitely right, and it is intriguing. I, you know, obviously my my horse in the race of late night with Jay Leno, and uh, I've I've always been a fan of him, and I could never watch uh, the other guy because I thought the other guy was just rude. And, uh, and, you know, another person who's so irrelevant right now try, and trying desperately to be relevant and who cares what he is like, it, it surpassed you. But that, sh that show was always about his reaction to the guest and not the guest. Whereas Leno, you know, uh, ultimately, you know, became, became a very astute, like, uh, you know, provocateur of stories and, figured out how to get people to, to do their best, just like Carson did. But, you know, you, you, if you have the same job for 25 years, you better really get good at it, you know? Well, you know, it's funny because I met, I can't remember his name, the wrestler with Andy Kaufman that was on the other host show. Do you remember that episode? Yeah, and I'm not, like, we could say David Letterman. I'm not, yeah, I know. Like, no, I'm, I'm making a joke about that. Yeah, I know. We're talking about David yeah, Letterman. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, uh, um, Jim Lawler, I think his name is. Yeah, Jerry, yeah. Jerry uh, Lawler. Lawler. Jerry Lawler. Yeah. I met Very him, well. and what he said was, because they did not, they rehearsed it, Andy Kaufman and Jerry, Jerry Lawler, but they didn't tell Letterman what they were going to do. They said he was so pissed off at them, and Jerry was saying, why? It was probably one of the best rated shows you're ever going to have. Why couldn't you just enjoy it? But instead, you know, he wasn't involved in it. He wasn't the star of that skit. So they said that he wouldn't talk to him for the rest of his career. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that something? It's so, uh, you know, like when we did the late shift, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to say something uh, like the, what I want to say is David Letterman should have John Michael Higgins. He was so good as him, like yet he derided him and, and like John Michael Higgins was astounding as Letterman and, and Letterman couldn't just like be like, Oh God, this guy played me. What? How great is that? That someone play you? No, it all had to be. You know, I actually revisited that movie recently and and watched again and appreciated again how astounding John Michael Higgins is. And and you know, and here's the here's the difference. David Letterman will be forgotten. People say, who was the host of that show? That it was called the Something Something Show, and he'll be forgotten because that's what he deserves. Because. David Letterman's a great example of a guy who set himself up as, as the, the authority, as the, you know, the demander of people, as the ridiculer of hypocrites, and he was the biggest hypocrite of all. He's hitting on his staff and having affairs, and you know, and 
and doing all kinds of terrible things to the women who worked on his show. Like, but, you know, but he's pointing fingers at everyone else. It's the hypocrites that drive me crazy. <laughs> well, the opposite of what David Letterman thought about the actor that portrayed him, Jay Leno loved your performance. Jay Leno has been extremely gracious to me over the years. I don't know if he ever publicly talked about it. I know initially he, he didn't want to publicly talk about it because he was uh, suggested that he not. It was a very difficult time in the guy's life. Uh, and Helen Kushnick, who was his manager, portrayed by Kathy Bates in the movie, oh, yeah. was, you know, was extremely important in his rise to stardom, but also a, an egregious human being. So there's that, you know, Stockholm syndrome, you know, where you, you don't want to know that the person that's responsible for your success is an evil, evil person. Um, Do you think he looked the other way? Do you think he knew about that? And he just said, you know what, let the... As long as I get guests, I'm not really worried about what's going on behind the scenes. Or do you think that he really had no clue? Um, no, I think it would be impossible to not have a clue. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm in show business and, you know, the people who represent you, you know, they have to run things by you generally. Uh, although I'm at a point in my life where I, the people, the people who manage my career have been part of my family for 35 years, nearly since right after Cave Girl. Uh, so I don't, I let them do everything. I'm, I'm like, you just tell me where to go. I, it is, you know, later on, I can know how much money I'm making. I don't really, you know, and I'm not making a joke. You know, I don't, We you go up for TV series to be a series regular and you have to ne negotiate all that stuff in advance. And uh, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, you guys negotiated and I'll, and when I sign the contract, I don't even look at what the number is because I don't want to audition against a number. I want to audition against the part. Yeah. Well, it's great um, that you can have people that you, you work with people that you like and also trust. That's probably the most important thing. Implicitly. Yes. Like without, without faltering for a second, I trust them. Like I'm not a huge um, Adam Sandler fan, but I do have a lot of respect for him that he, he just basically makes movies with his friends and he's having a good time and th they do well for the most part. I just don't like, I'm not a fan of like his older movies. Like, um, I can't remember like, uh, the one with Bob Barker. I, I yeah, know. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm, I, I'd be hard pressed to 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 remember myself. But but uh, you know, by all accounts that I hear, not a bad guy. No, I heard he's uh, a really nice guy. That's what I was saying. It's like I think he's a great guy. Happy Gilmore is the movie I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, Nikki. I'm, I'm more drawn to. Uh, well, Little Nicky, I do remember, like, I, I convinced a buddy of mine to go see that instead of something else, and then I had to buy him dinner, because it just really... <laughs> Horrible. Yeah, it just not was not funny. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's, let's you know, I'm drawn to Albert Brooks, you know, I'm drawn to a more cerebral style of comedy, and, uh, yeah, you know, and I want to, I want to have people laughing and, and, and thinking uh, simultaneously. No, and that's a, a very talented thing to have. Like somebody that can laugh and have you think at the same time. And like you said, he's one of them. Now who name another person that you think is on par with him. Well, I, I, you know, it's hard, I, it's hard for me to celebrate Woody Allen. Uh, but I do, I do, you know, uh, he, he, there are a number of masterpieces. Oh yeah. In his revoir. You know what, uh, I haven't watched. I haven't watched one of his movies since, um, since that nastiness. Because you know, let's let's be fair. I, you can you can 
and every time someone tries to tell me that, well, now let's be, you know, it wasn't his daughter, it was the adopted daughter, blah, blah, it, it's just, it's just not done. It's just not, and it's great. It's, it would be like me marrying my wife's daughter. Uh, like, it's just creepy on a level that supersedes anything that he created. Like the creepiness was too much. Anyway, let's let's talk about something. I, I <laughs> we, we should. I know we have to finish soon. Let's talk about positive stuff. Yes, exactly. Our this the the claws corner took a dark turn there for a second, but we're yeah, going. And I don't. And by the way, I don't like. I don't. I'm not setting myself up for as I don't ever want someone to consider me a hypocrite. I'm I'm a I'm I'm a child of God, and I've failed as as we all have to to be the best person that I could be sometimes in my life but i really really try to do better every day uh and I, it's not my place to judge like i'm i'm angry at the woody allens and the and the david letterman's because because they set themselves up as as the arbitrar of ethics and morality and and don't and don't adhere to it i mean it's like it's like the cometer it's like like the the you know the people who ran communist Russia uh, did not adhere to the same rules that they applied to all the people they killed, you know, because they thought they were above it. They were the most equal of all equals, and and that's like crazy thinking. So that's why I'm I'm not a fan of theirs. Let's talk about Ken and Grace because I do want well, I will get to, to that in a second, and I would I want to talk about that because. That's a great thing. That's a movie you wrote, directed, produced, starred in. But first, I wanted to talk about um, let's on a more positive note because you were also in the Fugitive and its sequel, U.S. Marshals. What was it like True, working yeah. with Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford? That's a pretty uh, pretty all star cast. Yeah, that, I mean that that was um, that in a in a nutshell was uh, you know Tommy Lee Jones was new actor to. Revere, you know, he had only had a few years before that for us to kind of take note of his talent. Anybody who saw the Gary Gilmore story saw an extraordinary, the extraordinary talent he had. Now Harrison Ford, though, you know, hey Dan, you're gonna go work, you're gonna go work with Han Solo. Wait, what? Huh? <laughs> what? Like you can't, you you and Indiana Jones are like it's, it's oh, yeah. just. So it's just so crazy. And again, you know, I, I considered Harrison Ford. I thought he was like an actor of my generation. Like he was entertaining us 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, you know, he was starring in the key developmental movies of our childhood. So working alongside of him was a blessing that, it's hard to even put into words. Yeah, I mean, they were both great movies too. Yeah, and and so, hey Kevin, let me ask. You, excuse me, I said Kevin. I'm sorry, <laughs> Rich. Rich, yeah, I know your name. I'm sorry. <laughs> let me ask you a question. Can you know? Do you would you consider my concern is uh, I am my my available time to talk to you guys okay. is is over. May we? Could there be a part two? Uh, oh yeah, we will definitely have a part two. And uh, when would you like to? Well, we'll talk off the air about scheduling. Yeah, you it. talk talk about that. Let's. But but I want to keep talking because we're you know you got to think of this. We're at the fugitive. We're only at nineteen ninety five. 
Um, so, <laughs> well, so you know what? Yeah, first of all, I mean, all right, let's, let me give a little teaser for Daniel Roebuck, part two. Coming up in our next interview, we're going to talk about his work with Mel Gibson. We're going to talk about his movie, was it Finding Grace? Is that correct? Getting Grace. Getting, Getting Grace, Grace, sorry. And we're also and going in to the talk... Room, in the inner room, Rich Sears is going to watch the movie. Yes, I no, am. No, you did see it. You did no, see it. No, unfortunately you? not, because I'm our mutual friend, Cortland Hull, you were in the Connecticut area, and I know he was there. I didn't realize that you were in town until maybe two or three months later. But I'm definitely going to check that out, and uh, All right. we'll get you the movie so that you can, so that you can talk about it from from the perspective yeah. of someone who's seen it. And then we're also going to talk about his book entitled "Bumpus: The Reluctant Krampus." And that's all Perfect. coming up on part two of Daniel Roebuck. So, ladies and gentlemen, as I get my papers ready, that wraps up another edition of the Claws Corner. Dan, as always, it was a thrill to have you on the show. Please come back, and I know you are very, very soon. Yeah. We'll set that up soon. So that was part one with actor, writer, producer, the man of a thousand faces, Daniel Roebuck. Until next time, see you in the Claws Corner.